Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One, majoring in the minors. We are looking at Tuesday in Holy Week. We uh, talked a little bit about these days in Holy Week. Most Lutheran Christians, uh, and I think probably most Christians in general, are familiar with Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter in Holy Week. I think most of them are also familiar with Palm Sunday, but the days in between tend, uh, tend to be forgotten. And so the opportunity to worship on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday in Holy Week is a great, great opportunity. We have already in our previous episode looked at Monday in Holy Week. So today we're going to look at Tuesday in Holy Week. And one other thing that I want to mention as a preliminary note, in some of the lectionaries, there are optional readings for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in Holy Week. And the optional reading for Tuesday in Holy Week is, uh, let me find here, is Matthew, okay, Matthew 27, 11, uh, excuse me, Mark 14, tiny print, sorry folks, Mark 14, 1 to fifteen forty seven. And then Wednesday in Holy Week, Luke 22, 1 to 23, 56. And so uh, Monday of Holy Week would look at the Passion according to Matthew. Tuesday in Holy Week, the Passion according to Mark. Wednesday in Holy Week, the Passion according to Luke. And then that way, before you get to Monday, Thursday, you've got all of the different Gospel Passion readings that are there. There are uh, some... Uh, lectionaries that have a really long passion story read on Palm Sunday because they know very few people come to church between Palm Sunday and Easter, and they want to try to fill in the blanks. What uh, what we have done here at Good Shepherd and what we're going to be looking at in our readings is we're, we're looking at the traditional readings for Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday in Holy Week. So on Monday in Holy Week, John 12, 1 to 23. Today, Tuesday in Holy Week, John 12, 23 to 50. And then Wednesday in Holy Week, John 13, 16 to 38. So when you put Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday together in Holy Week, you have read through the entirety of John chapter 12 and John chapter 13. I really like that continuity, and by the time the season of Easter is played out, we will pretty much have read every word from John 12 to the end of the Gospel of John. And uh, there's something, I think, very, very uh, powerful in being in that big of a chunk of one of the gospel readings. Just some overall comments on that, Pastor, before we dig into our text. Well, I, I think, um, you know, don't neglect these uh, smaller days, I guess you'd call them in the church year, because it's an opportunity to receive God's gifts of word and sacrament. And so uh, I encourage you to participate and to read the word and to meditate on the passion a little bit. Um, even, you know, when you go back to the ancient world, the feast of the Passover, which uh, Good Friday fulfills, was a seven-day-long feast. And so uh, spend the same amount of time reading God's words and focusing on what Christ has come to do for you. And we 
have for more than 12 years now. We've offered uh, a Vesper service Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday during Holy Week. So come join us at Good Shepherd in person, 6.30 p.m., or on the radio or other various ways that you can uh, check us out. Uh, The Gospel Reading. That we'll be looking at for our examination of Tuesday and Holy Week, proclaiming the one majoring in the minors, is John 12, 23 to 50. Long narrative, Vicar, take it away. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, Believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. 
Okay, there you have the gospel reading for Tuesday and Holy Week, John 12, 23 to 50. You know, Pastor, as I was uh, listening to Vicar read those words, I couldn't help but think about six or eight or ten major themes that are in these verses, each one of them would be worthy of a sermon in and of itself. And I think that that uh, displays how difficult it is to uh, to preach on a long narrative like this. I mean, you can, you can kind of retell the story, but uh, that's not really a law gospel sermon. So I think the... Uh, the preacher really has to grab on to a few verses or one of these thematic topics in order to preach this gospel. Would uh, would you agree with that, or do you would you approach that a little differently? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of things to juggle in, in answering the question, where is your congregation at, uh, what do they know, how uh, good is the preacher, how organized is he and uh, his presentation and things like that. So uh, generally speaking, the average preacher will probably have to uh, you know, just focus in on a little bit of things here. Okay. Uh, there, there's a lot here, and the, the transitional verse— The last verse that we read on Monday in Holy Week was John 12, 23. And then the gospel begins with John 12, 23 again, kind of a pivot or a transitional verse, and continues on with the next 26 verses. Jesus answered, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then as you read on, we have... um, Father, glorify your name. Voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Uh, Later on, the people that uh, believed in him but wouldn't confess it, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Our bumper music today is Glory Be to Jesus. This glory talk and this glory theme permeates this particular text. Can you help us sort out all the different ways glory and glorify is being used here, Pastor? Well, I think to sort that out, we have to actually go to the words that were in the uh, the verses before this, where some Greeks come and they wish to see Jesus. And in fact, that's the exact thing that they say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And that's what gets Jesus talking about this glory, because the Jesus that uh, we need to see is the Jesus that is glorified, the, the glory of the cross, the glory of the crown of thorns, the glory of the blood uh, and the, the death for forgiveness of sins, life and salvation. That's how God is glorified. And in fact, um, that's when when God the Father speaks from heaven, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. That's exactly the thing that God is talking about. Jesus is going to go to the cross, and in the cross, we're going to see the fullness of God's glory in that he saves sinners from their sinfulness. So, Vicar, when when people talk about glory, uh, and and I agree, this is exactly what is taught to us, especially in these uh, words in the Gospel of John, the glory of God is in the bloody death uh, of Jesus, his naked body hanging on the cross. When people in our world think of glory, they think of something very, very different. What are some of the ways people think or what do they think of when they think of something having glory or being glorified? 
a position of power, some sort of show of authority or fame or the exertion of being able to do things. You know, when people think of glory, they think of God on Mount Sinai or God doing some sort of miraculous thing or someone having some sort of great power and adulation and adoration when in fact as you two have both said god's glory is specifically found not in those things but on the cross power might adulation i would throw in success you know wealth uh you know uh tom brady won another super bowl yawn yawn okay uh he is glorified because of his success as an nfl quarterback these are the ways that people think of glory in our world and this is the glory of man that is talked about a little bit later in our text this is what people seek and people care more about the glory of man than the glory of God. I want you to ponder that thought for a little bit. We're going to take a break. And we come back, we're going to talk about what it means to have the glory of God. Don't change that dial. Proclaiming the one, majoring in the minors, Tuesday and Holy Week. K-N-N-A-L-P 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. Today we're looking at Tuesday in Holy Week. I'm Pastor Clint Poppy, along with me, Pastor Adam Oline, Vicar Timothy Steele. We're privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. In our Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors program, we take a look at some observances in the church, uh, some minor, some a uh, little more than minor, like today, uh, commemorations, observances, uh, other days that are sometimes celebrated in the church here, but we really don't get an opportunity to examine them in the depth that we would like. And so today we are examining in great detail Tuesday and Holy Week. The gospel reading that we're examining is John 12, 23 to 50. And where we left off, Pastor, was uh, this this talk of glory and uh I, th- I think to anyone who reads the Gospel of John, they will have to agree, whether they like it or not, they will have to agree that God, through the Gospel of John, defines glory as the dead body of Jesus suspended between heaven and earth, naked, bleeding, dead, paying for the sins of the world. This is the glory of God. This is the glory of Jesus Christ, even crowned with glory in a crown of thorns. And in, uh, in our text for today, we have in verse 43, talking about people who believed in Jesus but were afraid to publicly confess it, that they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Pastor, what, how would you explain that? 
Well, I mean, I know we talked about, uh, you know, Tom Brady or, uh, you know, presidents and things like that as being glorious. But I think for the average human being, it's even more uh, close than that because we have this idea that, um, you know, we really care about what kind of car we drive and how it looks so that we can put our best foot forward in the world. We care about if our lawn is all green and cut to the exact right height, uh, you know, just a lush, beautiful lawn, and because then that makes us look more glorious compared to our neighbors. We care about having the newest smartphone or the fastest internet connection uh, or the uh, you know, the the proper outfit. Uh, we even have our celebrities now that um, get painted to not even look human anymore with so much makeup and weird hair and nails and, and stuff like that, um, where they are changing the shape of their bodies even um, to make them more glorious. And essentially all it is is faith in self, uh, self-justifying in the sense, look what I have compared to you. Um, and that's the glory that man loves. That's the glory that the Pharisees were always struggling with. And it does not have any place in the Christian faith because Christ's giving all of that up and more as he hangs on the cross. And in the cross, then, when we see the true glory of God, it uh, is the exact opposite of what we think glory is. Could I, could I look at that verse when it says uh, they uh, love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God? Could I say they love the glory that comes from man more than the forgiveness of sins? I, th- I think that's a large part of it. I think, too, they're afraid of what it might mean for their life, right? If the Pharisees kick you out of the synagogue, you're going to be able to buy food, you're going to be able to talk with your neighbor, or you're going to be suddenly uh, with the nations, unclean, you know, separated from what you're used to. And so even the comfort and uh, regularity of their life, they love more than they love God. And so however we define it, it all comes down to the first commandment, where we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And whatever other thing you put in that, uh, and it could be anything, it could be family, it could be job, it could be home, it could be house, it could be cars, it could be position or whatever. Whatever we put in there that's not God, uh, that we love more, that's the problem. Take they our life, goods, fame, child, or wife, though these all be gone, the victory has been won. Um, very good. Thank you. And I, I really appreciated you bringing that down to earth with regard to the things that we tend to glory in uh, because... Um, most of us are not going to win seven Super Bowls or anything like that. You know, those those are our idols uh, more than more than that personal glory. So I think I think that was very helpful. Uh, I want to go back in our text now, uh, beginning in verse twenty four. Our uh, our hearers may have recognized these words. Vicar, do you want to read twenty four, twenty five, and twenty six of John chapter twelve? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Pastor, for our for our hearers, these words may sound kind of familiar. 
and I know for pastors, especially pastors who have been a pastor for a little while, these words are very, very familiar. Where do these words come from? Well, they oh, well, come from I mean, the Gospel of St. John, chapter yeah, 12. Yeah, yeah, what, Why are these words so familiar? Let me ask you a little they're, bit. They're, they're familiar because uh, oftentimes they're associated with the funeral rite, I think specifically the uh, committal, where we gather at the graveside to plant the body of our loved one into the ground, knowing that on the last day, Christ will raise them from the dead. Uh, in other words, it's not a final resting place, but just a resting place until the end of the world. So are these words meant to scare us into believing, or are these words of comfort for the people who hear them? Uh well, they should be words of comfort because uh, the promise is, is that death is not the end, uh, that rather when you're planted in the ground, just like a seed of wheat, that you will uh, be raised and, and uh, bear much fruit in the, the world that is to come. You will have a resurrection of your body, too. And I think in our modern world, Christians have kind of lost that idea. You know, so many Christians don't believe in the resurrection. They think when you die, you become an angel and you walk around on clouds the rest of uh, eternity, and that's simply not the truth. There is recreation that's coming. Uh, there is a resurrection of the dead. There is a new heaven and a new earth that you will live in, and that's all what God promises, and that's what Jesus is teaching with these words. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, let's, uh, let's scoot down now again to uh, verse 31. Verse 31 says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What is this judgment that Jesus is specifically referring to? Who is this ruler of the world that he's talking about? And what is this lifting up? So I got a three-part question for you, Pastor. Yeah, the the judgment is the judgment for all sin, and it's going to be placed on Jesus. He's going to pay the price so that the rest of us, in one sense, get off scot-free, right? Uh, he pays the penalty. We get to uh, continue on without the penalty. Um, now, that, of course, we have the caveat. If you don't believe in Jesus, then uh, that's the, the unforgivable sin, if you will. And so we don't say all people are saved, but uh, the judgment of the sin of the world is placed upon Christ. The ruler of the world that's cast out, then, is Satan, who has been accusing people. Uh, that's even what the name Satan means, accuser. And so he's been going around saying to God, truthfully, you know, um, look at Clint Poppy. He's a terrible, miserable, rotten sinner. Uh, he doesn't uh, match your desire for perfection. He has no part in your kingdom. When Christ pays for all the sin on the cross, that accusation no longer carries any weight. And so Christ is now the new ruler, and Satan is cast out, no longer able to accuse or rule this world by his accusations. Uh, and the lifting up from the earth, uh, this is the way Jesus speaks about his crucifixion throughout the entire Gospel of John. He even says the same sort of thing to Nicodemus, just as the serpent was lifted in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Um, he says it elsewhere, where when I am lifted up, I will draw all the world to myself. Um, and he here he's talking about it also, the crucifixion being lifted up on the cross. It's uh, interesting if you go back toward the end of Isaiah 52, this uh, lifting up talk 
is there as well, right as almost a preface to the fourth suffering servant song. So this is nothing new in Scripture. I think Jesus is connecting himself to that fourth suffering servant. And as Christians, we have to focus in that same way. As Paul says, I preach Christ crucified. Uh, I remember a a pastor, LCMS pastor, talking one time uh, about how he couldn't talk about Jesus on the cross because he had had this issue with his dad when he was a kid of uh, abuse. And so, you know, it was offensive to him and he couldn't talk about it. Well, if you throw that out, you've thrown out the Christian faith. The entire Gospel of John says, look to me when I'm lifted up. Uh, The epistles of Paul say, you know, we preach Christ crucified. Everything points to the work of the cross because that's where God's glory is revealed. That's where our salvation is won. And that needs to be the thing that we are... um, inexhaustibly talking about uh, as Christians and as uh, people in this world. Yeah, don't get yourself uh, caught up in that that nonsense that Good Friday is somehow divine child abuse or something like that. Uh, this this is the glory of God. This is how God pays for your sin. This is God's judgment against your sin, except it's not laid on you. It's laid on Jesus, the great exchange. Um Along with that, I think everybody hearing this in the context, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Jesus is predicting the way he's going to die. The text goes on. And then um, in uh, verse 34, Pastor, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? If the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is to last forever, how can you say that he's going to be crucified? This makes no sense. Well, uh, it doesn't uh, from just a human perspective, because once you're dead, you're dead. Um, and uh, and that's what lifting up will bring about is uh, uh, death. And yet uh, we also know that uh, resurrection is going to take place because the law also teaches that. Uh, we see the same thing. Even we could get into Abraham and Isaac and the almost sacrifice of Isaac where there's the substitute that takes place uh, so that Isaac can still live. Um, Christ is that one who's going to be raised from the dead. He is going to, yes, die, but also live forever and uh, even uh, ascend into heaven to reign at the right hand of God for all eternity. And so um, it's pretty, pretty neat thing. And it's also interesting in the context because he's just talking about the grain of wheat that has fallen into the ground. He's talking about resurrection here, and they're focusing on the death, the Good Friday, because their eyes are closed. And they have not, uh, the Holy Spirit has not opened their eyes, which the text goes on talking about the Isaiah uh, yeah. prophecies here. To, to bring it, I mean, to emphasize again, so yes, the church is always talking about crucifixion. We can't just leave Jesus dead. We need to also talk about the resurrection. Yes, and uh, uh, Dr. Brighton at the seminary would uh, often say, Good Friday without Easter is nothing more than a sentimental journey. And Easter without Good Friday leaves you nothing to celebrate. Ponder those words, my friend. We'll be back after a short break. Proclaiming the one, majoring in the minors, Tuesday in Holy Week. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Glory be to Jesus. 
Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Timothy Steele. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come join us for worship Sunday mornings, 8 and 1030 with... Uh, family-style Bible study in between, Wednesday evening year-round at 6.30. And uh, during Holy Week, uh, we have Worship Every Day. Check out the website for all the particulars. But Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday in Holy Week, we have Vespers at 6.30. Come join us. A great opportunity for a little extra time in God's house on Holy Week. Today, we are parking the car at Tuesday in Holy Week. Um, our Old Testament reading for Tuesday and Holy Week, Holy Tuesday, Jeremiah eleven, eighteen to 20. Vicar, take it away. The Lord made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me they devised schemes, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut off him... <clears throat> Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. Okay, we've got uh, several themes in this really, really short and cool text. Um, some of the uh, Some of the best sermons that I have ever heard in my life have been on Holy Tuesday on this particular text, Jeremiah 11. And to the best of my knowledge, it doesn't come up anywhere else in our readings, our pericopes. It gives us a slaughterhouse scene. And people in 21st century America are not really in tune with what a slaughterhouse is what a slaughterhouse sounds like, what a slaughterhouse smells like. When I was a kid growing up on the farm, we had a slaughterhouse for ourselves on the farm. And so from a very, very early age, I knew the sights and the sounds and the smells of the slaughterhouse. When we are talking about a slaughter. A gentle lamb led to the slaughter. What kind of images is God evoking for us with that slaughter term? Well, um, <laughs> a lamb, you know, you know lambs, uh, they're cute little furry creatures or whatever uh, that everybody loves. And, and, oh, look, a field of sheep or whatever. But uh, when we're talking about the slaughter of a lamb, then we have to get messy, right? So we're talking about slitting the throat as it hangs from its back leg so that the blood will drain out of the meat and then uh, taking the skin off from the, the creature. Uh, and, you know, then you have to wash out the guts in the inside. And that's kind of can be a messy, smelly thing. But especially back then, because you're going to to uh, save things like the heart and the, the liver to eat, and you're going to clean out the uh, uh, intestines to make sausage and things like that. And so you're, you're wading through all this blood and this guts, and you're cutting the animal into pieces and, uh, and back then because you're going to eat it right away. And so, you know, it's kind of a gory picture. It's a uh, messy picture. It's a bloody picture that's being put forward here. We have in uh, Jeremiah 
Jeremiah talking about the people who have turned their backs on God, people who have broken the covenant that God established with them. And here, when we get to this part of Jeremiah chapter 11, the Lord made it known to me, and I knew you showed me their deeds. He's talking about the deeds of those who had forsaken God, all the evil wickedness, the broken covenant. And then he says, but I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me. They devised schemes. Uh, Pastor, is Jeremiah talking about himself or someone else? Uh, no, Jeremiah is not talking about himself. And if you look at it in your Bible, it's probably a, a little bit clear to see this. It's indented because this is a song uh, or poetry. Uh, and so in this particular instance, uh, God is speaking through the mouth of Jeremiah, but it's actually God who is speaking. And so it is essentially prefiguring Christ's crucifixion on Good Friday is what this whole song is talking about. And uh, it does it beautifully, too. So a gentle lamb led to the slaughter, almost echoing the fourth servant song from Isaiah chapter 53. And and you don't have to take our word for it. If you look at verse 17, it says, the Lord of hosts decrees these things. Go ahead. Sure. Okay. Um, And uh, um, in verse 17, it also says that God has been provoked to anger by uh, people making their offerings to Baal. So this is all as a result of God's anger against sin. And we saw that same judgment talk against sin in our gospel reading in John chapter 12. Uh, Check out the uh, previous segment here. Okay. Um, I did not know it was against me. They devised schemes saying, uh, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let, Let us cut him off from the land of the living. It seems like God is mixing his metaphors here. Well, I mean, God is using all of his metaphors. I don't know if he's mixing them. They all have the same results, right? So you cut down a tree, it's not going to bear any fruit. Uh, You slaughter an animal, it's not going to have any uh, offspring. Uh, If you kill a person, they're not going to be in the land of the living. It's, It's not mixing metaphors. It's using several metaphors to teach the same thing. Almost in kind of shorthand kind of talk. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really, in this section, there, there is so much squeezed into these few verses that it's almost ready to explode with the proclamation of the gospel, the gospel of the forgiveness of sins on account of Jesus. Verse 20, But, O Lord of hosts, who judges rightly, who tests the heart and the mind, Let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Pastor, I need you to help me sort this out, because with regard to God judges rightly, God tests the heart, and then it appears that we are asking God to pour out vengeance upon somebody for something, and then to you I have committed my cause. Who is doing the talking? Who is this about? And how are these words uh, for us during Holy Week? Well, these are still in the the same little section, the same song, and, and this entire Old Testament reading is. And so you have that idea that God is still speaking through Jeremiah to say these things. Uh, now, 
God is saying that he's the one who judges righteously. He's the one who knows what's in everybody's heart and mind. And so his vengeance needs to go out against the sin that he knows. And this is an important thing to keep in mind that you cannot hide your sin from God. God knows what your sin is. You can't, you might hide it from yourself. You might hide it from your spouse. You might hide it from your employer or whoever, but you cannot hide your sin from God. God knows it and God is going to pour out vengeance upon it. The crazy bit though is that he doesn't pour the vengeance out upon you. He pours it out upon Christ, just like we read in our gospel lesson. The, the lamb. The lamb. The, to, the taken to the slaughter from earlier in the text, okay. He's the one that the vengeance and wrath of God is poured out upon so that you might be set free uh, free to live apart from that wrath and vengeance. Okay. So with regard to I committed my cause, um, Pastor, I can't help but think of Jesus hanging naked, bleeding, near death, I mean seconds away from death, uh, crying out to the Father, uh, the words of Psalm 30, uh, into your hands, I command or I commit my spirit. Can we connect that last verse and uh, those words of Jesus from the cross? I, th- I think we probably can. I think that, uh, you know, God is teaching these things throughout all of Scripture, and we ought to see all the fulfillment of all Scripture take place in Good Friday and Easter Sunday, uh, that that's what everything is all about. Just like we said in the first or second segment, you know, we need to always be talking about the crucifixion, and we need to always be talking about the resurrection, because that's what the entire Scripture is about, Old and New Testament. And so this definitely, I think, is pointing ahead to that moment. We, we have a marvelous text here from Jeremiah that gives us a vivid word picture of Good Friday, gives us a vivid word picture of the great exchange, how God pours out his judgment on the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have a marvelous word picture of how God is taking care of sin He is avenging sin, and it all takes place in a slaughterhouse. The Lamb of God, I think we are first given that picture with the Passover meal where the blood of the Lamb uh, is put on the doorpost. The Lamb is eaten. Uh, People are to prepare for the journey. Is it too much of a stretch, Pastor? Here we are in Holy Week. Is it too much of a stretch to see this slaughterhouse scene and connect it back to that first Passover, the Passover meal, and you know where I would want to go with the ongoing eating and drinking of the Passover lamb today? Well, I think uh, that's, I mean, again, the same idea is that all of Scripture finds its fulfillment in these uh, these days, uh, this, this week, this Holy Week. That's why we need to spend those time uh, in the Word, because, yes, the, the Lamb of the Passover is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is the Lamb who sacrificed instead of Isaac, is the Lamb uh, who is burned on the altar, is the Lamb whose blood is sprinkled on the people, is the Lamb who uh, we eat and drink in with and under bread and wine for forgiveness of sins. The Lamb is Jesus. And uh, throughout all of Scripture, uh, 
when we read the scripture, we always need to be looking for where is Jesus in this particular text, because the more we look for him, the more we find him. And I'm not trying to read into the text with those things, but to realize that's really what all of the scripture is about, and its fulfillment comes in Jesus, crucified and risen to take away the sin of the world. Yeah, I think think it's really good how you said that, because every one of these details connects us to— Forgiveness, life, and salvation, one, by the perfect life, obedient death, and glorious resurrection of Jesus, each one. And then as we are connected to that, from there, we are able to connect back. Holy baptism, the Lord's Supper, uh, the Passover meal, where we're, uh, it's, it's just almost like a constant web or weaving of Scripture and that main character, that main topic, the material principle, is justification. We are declared righteous on account of the person work of Jesus Christ. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the epistle reading for Holy Tuesday, 1 Timothy 6, 12 to 14. Don't change that dial. to K-N-N-A-L-P 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska Glory be to Jesus who with bitter for me the life from his sacred name. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One Majoring in the Minors. Today we're looking at Tuesday in Holy Week. We, uh, in our first two segments, we looked in great detail at our gospel reading, John 12, 23 to 50. In our third segment, we looked at the marvelous uh, Old Testament reading from Jeremiah 11. And now we want to take a look at our epistle reading. And our epistle reading is 1 Timothy 6, 12 to 14. And uh, this one will connect us very well to our gradual. So, uh, Vicar, 1 Timothy 6. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made, the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, and uh, while we're at it, to to put this together, Vicar, do you want to read our gradual, which uh, uh, little snippets from Psalm 35. It's Psalm 35, uh, the first half of verse 13, the first half of verse 1, and the second half of verse 2. But I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me, and rise for my help. Contend with those who contend with me, rise for my help. Our epistle reading, fight the good fight of faith. Now, many many hymns or uh, spiritual songs have been written based on this uh, particular text, or at least the first line in this uh, particular text. Paul is writing to young Pastor Timothy here in 1 Timothy. This is toward the end of this first pastoral letter from Paul to Timothy. Fight the good fight of the faith. 
So what kind of fight is Paul encouraging Timothy to embark on? And is it significant that he says, fight the good fight of the faith rather than fight the good fight of faith? Or your faith. Yeah, I I think uh, that's the truth is that uh, the fight that Timothy is being encouraged to fight is preaching the word and administering the sacraments um, because that's the way that God works in the world is through word and sacrament. And so Paul is encouraging Timothy to uh, preach, to teach, to administer baptism, and to celebrate the Lord's Supper with the people of his congregation. And uh, in that way, they are fighting the fight of the faith, the faith that looks to Jesus Christ, the faith that confesses the Trinity, uh, the real, true Christian faith. So are you trying to tell me that uh, doctrine or teaching is worth fighting for? Well, it's worth standing up for the truth, right? Uh, and just by the nature of standing up for the truth, there's always a, a division from those who are against the truth. And so it necessarily divides. And in that sense, we have to stand up and fight against those who teach falsely. I, I think it's not really as active as it probably it seems in the sense that when we proclaim the truth, um, that in itself is the fight, and really the Holy Spirit is the one at work fighting the fight uh, through the Word and through the sacrament. And so, uh, you know, we, we, we're we called, saved by Jesus, and now we preach the truth, and that's as simple as it is. When, uh, when people sometimes look at the Lutheran Church or the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, they can see us at times as a contentious lot the grouchy group the grouchy group and that we're always nitpicking or that we're always uh you know worried about the jot and tittle of scripture uh that you can't make a mistake or even one of our uh, own synodical presidents critiqued the Missouri Synod by saying our only problem is our incessant internal doctrinal purification. Um, Pastor, are these are these uh, observations or critiques of confessional Lutheranism are they valid? Um, and if they are or aren't, uh, why? Well, um, it is important to speak the truth. And uh, and it may seem like we're nitpicking and, and fighting about all the little details, but the reality is the devil is in the details. And what we're always trying to do is to eliminate ourselves from the equation, to take away uh, where we're trying to insert our own opinions or thoughts into things and let to God's word speak for itself. And it's a hard thing to do because... Uh, to be on board with that train, you have to get rid of yourself also, you know, so it's not just those people out there, Missouri Synod folks that are trying to get rid of themselves. You have to do that also, and that means you have to listen to what the Word says, and that's where the accusation of nitpicking comes. Now, sometimes we probably do uh, get in little arguments about the wrong things, and again, we need to repent of that and get rid of ourselves and let the Word speak for itself. Um, So, you know, it's hard to, to judge that statement. You said, is it a valid? Sometimes, sometimes not. But what we're trying to do throughout all of it is to let God's Word speak the truth as God's Word needs to. Uh, 
And uh, I think that critique in John chapter 12 really ties in here that uh, sometimes we are afraid to make the good confession. That's what we're talking about here in our text, making the good confession again and again and again. Follow the example of Jesus who made the good confession. That sometimes we don't make the good confession because we care more about the glory of man than we do about the glory of God. We care more about our our status, our reputation, all these little earthly things than we do about being faithful in making the good confession with regard to Christ and his word. It's, it's hard to stand up uh, and uh, talk about what God's word teaches regarding communion fellowship. It's difficult to stand up and talk about what God's word says regarding uh, God's gift of sexuality or maybe a, a young couple that's cohabitating. It's difficult to stand up and uh, talk about what God's word says regarding the office of the holy ministry and how this is for men only. These these are uh, emotional, hot button, sociological, sociological, hot button things today. And yet what God is calling us to do is to contend or to fight for the truth of his word. I asked Vicar to uh, read Titus 1.9 because Paul, um, Paul is consistent. He says basically the same thing to Titus in just a little bit different way. Titus 1.9, Vicar. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's two sides to the same coin. You're teaching the truth, and you're also rebuking error. And uh, can, can people go too far? Can people let their emotions get in the way? Can people uh, digress into personal attacks? Yes, and those things are sin. Uh, but to confit, contend for the truth of God's word is a good thing. Yeah, and I think that's the the really hard thing is to set aside ourselves and our pride and our uh, desire for success, or at least to appear that way, and um, and to realize that Christ has died for all sins, even the people we disagree with, even the people who are caught up in one of these difficulties, and to encourage us to talk with them and point out the forgiveness that they have as well so that they can leave behind their sin and enter God's kingdom as well. And, and all those things that you mentioned before uh, and more. I mean, this is basically a full-time job to kill ourselves and let God's Word have it say. And also to study God's Word so you know what God's Word says on a particular topic. Uh, because as the world, uh, science... Uh, so, sociology, all these things. I'm having a hard time saying that word today. Uh, as all these things change and evolve, God's word doesn't. And uh, to be able to apply God's word in any and every situation. Pastor, it says, fight the good fight of the faith, 1 Timothy six twelve. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What is this take hold talk? Where uh, where does this come from, and uh, how is that to be understood? Well, I'd say taking hold um, again. It's not inviting the the word into your heart. It's not uh, you know 
some action that you're doing, but maybe you could think of it as getting hit by a train and then grabbing hold of the train as it's pushing you down the track. You know, uh, that's the thing we're doing. We are holding on to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. We're holding on to the word, which the Holy Spirit uses to call, gather, enlighten us and sanctify us. Uh, we're hanging on to the thing that has made us alive. And maybe that's even a better picture, as if we're lying dead on the table and a doctor comes with the paddles and resuscitates us, we jump up and we grab a hold of him and say, thank you, or, or uh, praise God. And, and in a sense, that's what Paul is trying to get across to Timothy. Good word picture. Vicar? I also hear not only you know in mind the confession he makes before many witnesses in terms of you know Timothy being ordained, but also taking hold of the eternal life to which you were called, I think of baptism, where the person coming to be baptized, either as an adult or through their sponsors, rejects sin, devil, and death, and confesses God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And when we struggle and are in doubt, we can hold on to our baptism where Christ comes and calls us and makes us his own. I think this text would be a uh, really good uh, ordination or installation text as well. Uh, and uh, what I thought of, you know, with take hold of, uh, you know, I watch a lot of old westerns, and uh, if you've ever been to a rodeo, and you get on the uh, the horse that needs to be broke, or you get on the uh, uh, the wild animal, you don't know, see how long you can hang on. Hold on, just hang on, hold on tight. It's a wild ride, and that's really the life of a Christian too. It's, it's a wild ride because the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh want to kick us off, want to throw us away from Christ. At the same time, we have the words of Christ that uh, uh, take my burden upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light in the sense that uh, he's the one who's really doing the heavy lifting in the whole matter. And, and, uh, and so, you know, in the same way, it's, it's not quite as terrible as uh, maybe it seems. No, and while we think while we think we're holding on for dear life, uh, Christ has a firm grip of us. Pastor or uh, vicar, you want to bring things to a close, praying the collect of the day for Tuesday in Holy Week. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, grant us by your grace so to pass through this holy time of our Lord's passion that we may obtain the forgiveness of our sins. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. For Pastor Moline and Vicar Steele, I'm Pastor Poppy. Thank you for tuning in today to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors, Tuesday in Holy Week. We'll be back again soon. God's richest blessings in Christ.